right, friends, Greg Kokel here, your host, um, Stan Teresen, and uh, thank you for being part of the show here, and uh, today is uh, pretty much a open mic calls day. I'm doing off schedule, and uh, partly because I'm taking some time off this summer, getting my fishing rods ready, looking forward to rusticating in northern Wisconsin for a short while. And uh, therefore, I don't want to leave you as orphans, so we're making sure you have something available from me while I'm gone. Uh, I was at an event recently, and the speaker was talking about the inability of people in general to, uh, to think reasonably or rationally about things, and that in the school system, uh, they are not Students are simply not taught clear thinking. Certainly the public school system, maybe some private schools and homeschoolers are characteristic, characteristically engaging the logic aspect of, uh, of education of their young people, which is great. The reason they don't teach this in public schools, and I don't know if this is conscious or not, but it's just a thought I had, is because they wouldn't be able to teach a whole bunch of other nonsense that they teach if they taught people clear thinking. And uh, anyway, so he asked how many people have taken a course in logic, and it turned out in this particular church there were quite a number of people that raised their hands that they had taken some logic. And I didn't raise my hand because I've never taken a course in logic. Now, I, I employ some of the principles of careful thinking, and a, a partly because, not because I've taken a whole course in this and I can do symbolic logic and all that other stuff, but I understand some basic things about how these things work. And frankly, I was introduced to them more in a caught, not taught environment. And I, I took a course many years ago um, from Kim Riddlebarger, of all people, not that you'll know who he is, but a reform thinker and a teacher in this class, when I was at Simon Greenleaf University uh, taking a course in uh, presuppositional apologetics. And it people ask questions about that with some frequency. What's the difference between the two? And I, I'm not going to go into details on that now. But there are theological differences and philosophical differences. And in order for me to navigate through the distinctives that were being talked about, there were different laws of logic that got discussed, like the law of non-contradiction, or the law of excluded middle, or the law of identity. Now, all of these these are are actually very simple concepts. And since they are laws of thinking, there are things that we are all aware of all the time, and we employ them all the time without knowing their names or how to formally characterize it. But law, the law of non-contradiction, uh, formally put, simply is A, that is something represented by the letter A, cannot be not A at the same time and in the same way. <clears throat> and the last phrase is referring to the fact that words are equivocal. They could mean, the same word could mean different things. So if we said that Napoleon was a small man, but he was not a small man, 
that would sound like a contradiction unless you realize that when I say he was a small man, I meant small in stature, but he was not a small man, and I meant small there in terms of historical impact. So we're not using the words in the same way, so there is no contradiction. But if we were using them the same way, you can see there'd be a contradiction. Small, uh, uh, um, Napoleon can't be physically small and not physically small at the same time. He can't be historically consequential and not historically consequential at the same time. Now, sometimes these concepts are in play in illicit ways, or there's violations of them in ways that you don't quite see it. And that's where the caught comes in, as you're following with other people, as they're thinking through something and they point out a contradiction, uh, then you get to see it, and then you see how these things play themselves out in conversation. Law of identity is just simply A equals A. <laughs> uh, Greg Kokel equals the president of Stand to Reason. Greg Kokel is identical to the president of Stand to Reason at the moment. I mean, in principle, there could be another president at another time, and then that statement wouldn't be so. But it just means that everything that's true about Greg Kokel, if he's identical to the one who's the president of Standard Reason, is true about the president of Standard Reason. And even in principle, everything's got to be true. Even theoretically, there could be a difference. Now, by the way, the law of identity comes into play when you talk about the mind-body problem. Is the soul the same as the central nervous system. In other words, what we talk about the soul is nothing more than the physical body, the brain and the central nervous system. It's one's reduced to the other. Well, uh, if they're identical, then everything that's true about the first is going to be true about the second. Turns out they're not. <laughs> and uh, there, are th there, there are things that are true about my physical body that are not true about my consciousness. My physical body is governed by the laws of physics and chemistry. My conscious thinking is not governed by that. I, my thinking is my own. It goes wherever I want it to go. It isn't governed by chemistry. So, it, therefore, they must not be identical. Therefore, there must be a soul that is different from the physical body. So you can see how a formal principle here might work into um, into or play into an argument that has spiritual consequence. Now, <clears throat> I'm just tossing those others out just for sake of discussion here, because what I really want to focus in on is three things that you need to be aware of if you want to navigate thoughtfully in uh, the current cultural discussion. And when I say navigate, I, I actually don't mean navigate. I mean be able to see mistakes that are made in the discussion that people don't see, and they think they are doing something sensible or legitimate, and they're not doing anything legitimate at all. Now, these are in the category of what's called form informal fallacies. Now, formal fallacies are fallacies of thinking that are based on the form of the argument. Okay, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is a woman. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, it's supposed to be all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. 
that follows given the form of the argument. If A is true and B is true, then C follows. You can see that quite obviously. But the first example I gave for a conclusion didn't follow. So there's something wrong with the form of the argument. It's a fallacy called a formal fallacy. Okay, but then there are informal fallacies. These are mistakes in thinking people make, and they don't have to do with the structure of their argument. Frankly, most people don't make structured arguments. They make assertions. They say, well, this is my opinion. How do you deal with that argument? And my thinking is, well, that wasn't an argument. <laughs> that was just a point of view, an assertion. An argument is a point of view with reasons that go with it. That's an argument. Um, but there are ways that people go uh, afoul in their thinking that are called informal fallacies. And by the way, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of these. However, there um, there are three of them that you will that comprise probably ninety percent of the mistaken uh, the mistakes that in thinking that you'll encounter in the culture and in cultural issues, okay? And uh, they each have a kind of a fancy smancy name. If you're a homeschooler, you know what these are already. They are ad hominem. And number two is genetic fallacy. And number three is straw man. Those are the main ones right now. You could also add circular reasoning in there if you want to. This is a particular kind of error people fall into. You could have a red herring. This is a general kind of error that people use something and they drag you. They throw something in there to drag you off the track of the, the thinking. A red herring is like, it's like a fish. And when a dog is following the scent and you drag the fish on the ground across the scent line, the dog goes down with the scent. He hits the red herring scent and then is distracted and goes in the wrong direction. Well, that's a way of describing how people throw things in to distract us from the main point. Okay, but I want to spend a few moments here talking about these three informal fallacies that you will encounter all the time in uh, conversations about uh, spiritual things, whether they're theological or moral. These are the things that really matter. Ad hominem, genetic fallacy, and straw man. Now, ad hominem is a Latin term, which means to the man, to the man. So this fallacy, informal fallacy, happens when you are talking about some issue and the person with whom you're talking, we're just going to presume it's the other person that makes these mistakes, because you would never make these mistakes, would you? I hope not. They're all bad manners, and they're all bad thinking, so you don't want to make these mistakes. But for the sake of illustration, it's the other person, then, who is listening to what you say, and they end up changing the subject in a very particular way. Initially, you are talking about the issue the topic at hand. Maybe it's abortion, maybe it's um, same-sex marriage, maybe it's homosexuality, maybe it's gender issues, okay? And the response that you get as you're trying to engage regarding the idea with the goal to figure out 
which idea is the best idea, which is the soundest, which is the right one, which is the moral one, which is the one that comports with the facts, however you want to characterize it. And someone says, well, that's intolerant. Now, what have they done? You were talking about same-sex marriage, and then they say, but that's intolerant. Is the idea that same-sex marriage is wrong, is the idea intolerant? No. Why not? Because ideas can't be intolerant. Only the people who hold the ideas can act in an intolerant fashion. So when somebody says that's intolerant, whatever that means, that's another mystery, by the way. And I have a tactic in the tactics book called Sticks and Stones. It's a mini tactic. Did your mom ever say when your kids sticks and stones can break your bones, but names can never hurt you, right? Well, that's not entirely true, because names can hurt people. But uh, the point is, you have a name-calling going on. The topic that had been addressed is abandoned, and now something else is the center of the attention. What is the center of the attention now? You are. You are the intolerant person for holding the view that you're holding. Notice the conversation shifts from the merits of the respective issues to the character of the person who holds the view the other person doesn't agree with. They've changed the topic. They were addressing an issue, and now they are addressing the personality. That's why it's called ad hominem, to the man. It is not to the argument, it's to the man. They shift the focus to attacking not the point of view, but the person who holds the point of view. That is a fallacy. It's an informal fallacy called ad hominem, or you could just simply call it name-calling. This is the number one response that people give to controversial issues in our culture today. You want to engage them on a controversial issue? They're going to call you a name. They're going to call you intolerant. They're going to call you racist. They're going to call you homophobic. They're going to call you Islamophobic. Uh, they're going to call you bigoted and maybe a host of other things. Those are the f five of the, or misogynistic, hating women. Those are all charges against the individual, challenging the character of the individual who holds the view the other person doesn't agree with. They've changed the subject. They're missing the mark. They're not attacking the issue anymore. They're attacking you. Now, um, it might be good to ask, why did you change the sub subject? Because people who do this do not realize they're committing an informal fallacy. They do it so much, it's such a standard part of the conversation in our culture now, it just doesn't seem wrong. It seems fine. Until when they say you're intolerant, that you say, well, <laughs> you're ugly. Of course, I wouldn't say that. First of all, it's bad manners. Secondly, it's irrelevant, 
because can an ugly person hold a correct view about a controversial issue? Don't you hope so, right? Whether you're ugly or not ugly has nothing to do with whether your view is correct or incorrect. And whether you're tolerant or intolerant has nothing to do with whether your view, being labeled that way, is correct or incorrect. It's not relevant to the issue. Because an intolerant person can still hold an accurate view that someone considers intolerant. It still could be accurate to the facts of the circumstance. It could be the right view. It could be sound. It could be moral. But that issue is not being addressed because there is a distraction. There is a red herring that just got dragged across the trail, taking you off the trail of addressing the issue, and now you're being personally attacked. So that's your first informal fallacy that you're going to encounter. And like I said, there's a gazillion of them. And any time that the challenge is directed at you as an individual or something about your personality or character or or anything else, your your age, your sex, your whatever, well, actually, we'll get to that. Anything that just is faulting you and your character, let's just put it that way. Uh, there's a distraction, they change the subject, and you might ask them, why'd you change the subject? Question, right? Tactical approach. Okay, ad hominem. Second one, genetic fallacy. Now, this one's a little easier to figure out if you know what genetic means. Well, genetic is like the source of something that causes something else, like your genes cause your the color of your eyes, or the genesis being the beginning of something, or the origins of the thing. This is a fallacy in which someone challenges the legitimacy of your view because of the origin of the view. Okay, especially when the origin of the view is unrelated to the legitimacy of the view itself. I've actually reflected on a lot of these um, informal fallacies, and in every single case, there are some times when the informal fallacy is relevant, and therefore it's not a fallacy. Because if somebody says, you know, I didn't rob the bank, trust me, and somebody says, you're a liar— You've been lying for a long time. I see all kinds of examples of you lying. Now the question is a matter of their character that does relate to their reliability regarding this other issue. <clears throat> Why should I trust you now when I when it's clear that you've lied about other things? So that's not strictly speaking an ad hominem, though the challenge does go to the man, to the person. Okay, uh, The genetic fallacy is when a view is faulted simply because of its source, and especially when the source is, is, not, is not relevant to the legitimacy of the point. Okay, Classic example, you are a Christian because you were raised in the United States and you were raised in a Christian family. In other words, the source of your Christianity is cultural. That's the point. If you were raised in another culture, in another family, say Saudi Arabia, you wouldn't be a Christian. You'd be a Muslim. Now, these are the kind of points that are often raised by atheists. And do they have a point? Well, yeah, uh, issues of sovereignty of God aside, it does seem they have, an, they have a point. 
if I was raised with a Muslim family in Saudi Arabia, it's likely I would be a Muslim, okay? But what does that tell you about the legitimacy of Christianity versus Islam as to the truth of their religions, their respective religions? The psychological elements that, or the sociological elements, in this case, that are the source of my belief does not tell you anything about whether or not the belief is true. You can't fault the belief based on its source. Now, there are exceptions to this, and and I actually heard Bill Craig raise a challenge of genetic fallacy to the charge of of, if you if you believe in Darwinian evolution, then you can't you can't have I think it was objective morality or something like that, and um, and he thought well that's is that right or was it maybe you can't if if Darwinian evolution is true, then it's a mechanical physical process that creates your thinking process and therefore you can't believe the truth of Darwinian evolution since your beliefs are governed by naturalistic causes. There's one of those two cases, but he said, well, that's the genetic fallacy. And I don't think it applies in this case, because the point being made is that the genesis um, of the belief turns out to, in itself, legitimately disqualify the, the belief itself. It's not just a mere reflection on the genesis of the belief that that somehow is a distraction. But I gave you one example of a genetic fallacy. Oh, you were born here, and you Christian. Well, what does that tell you about whether or not Christianity is true or Islam is true? It doesn't tell you anything at all. It doesn't address the issues. It addresses something that's irrelevant. And by the way, my response to that, when the atheist says, if you were raised in Saudi Arabia, you wouldn't be a Christian, you'd be a Muslim— my response is, if you were raised, you, the atheists, were raised in Saudi Arabia, you wouldn't be an atheist. You'd be a Muslim. Now, does that mean atheism is false? No. That's just an observation about the nature of culture and psychology and anthropology. It's not, a, it's not an assessment of the truth claim of atheism or Christianity or Islam. It has nothing to do with it. It misses the mark entirely, which is why it's an informal fallacy. Okay, and so when people say, uh, well, regarding abortion, you're a man, to which I say, yes, therefore what? But they think it's relevant, because the issue is a woman's issue. Wait a minute, and this actually borders on our next fallacy, we'll get to that in a moment if I recall, if I remember this way of characterizing it, but wait a minute, you're disqualifying my objection to the morality of abortion because of my gender. As Frank Beckwith said, uh, (laughs) uh, arguments don't have genitals, so it doesn't matter which genitals the person possesses who offers the argument, it only matters if the argument is good or not. Now, the implication here is, well, this is a woman's issue. Well, wait a minute. What is the nature 
of this of this discussion. We are saying we uh, the 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 pro life view is that the unborn is a valuable human being whose life is being taken without proper justification. So what difference does it make whether it is a man objecting to the child being killed or a woman objecting to the child being killed? It's irrelevant what my sex is, but it's amazing to me how many otherwise bright people have been dismissive of the pro-life arguments coming from males for that reason. The same argument uttered by a female would have just as much merit one way or another. If it's good, it's still good. If it's bad, it's still bad. It does not matter what gender is speaking. But there's kind of a subtle assumption, since women get pregnant, that this is a woman's issue in the moral sense. To me, that's like saying, well, look at um, if a guy beats his wife, uh, can you object? Well, not if you're not married. Really? <laughs> oh, you're not married? So what do you have to say about this? Or how I treat my children? Do you have kids? You don't have kids? Well, you got nothing to say about this. You can see that the circumstances there, the genesis, genesis of the circum the genesis of the argument the circumstances that that the com- that that the complaint comes out of uh, are irrelevant to the nature of the complaint so if you're a childless you can still object to pe- to parents beating their own children if you're single you can still object to a husband abusing his wife or a wife abusing her husband for that matter to object in that way is a fallacy because you are objecting to the point simply based on the source of the objection, which source is irrelevant to the objection. Okay. Now, the last one, so we had ad hominem name calling, we have genetic fallacy. We also have straw man. A straw man is like a scarecrow. You can you can you can you can you outbox a scarecrow? Probably. I can. You put up a scarecrow, you knock it down. It doesn't fight back, okay? It's a straw man. It's not a real man. And so the the characterization is meant to illustrate the fallacy where you take someone's point of view and you misrepresent it, either purposefully or by accident. It doesn't matter to the fallacy. If it's purposefully, shame on you. Or shame on the person who does it. But maybe not. Maybe it's just an accident, and this happens a lot. Um, if you misrepresent somebody's view, and then you knock down the misrepresentation, you have beaten up a straw man. You have refuted a view the other person doesn't hold. <laughs> and so you've gotten nowhere. All right. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago when I talked about genetic fallacy with regards to abortion and someone saying, oh, well, you're a man and dismissing your view there because this is a woman's view. This is also a subtle straw ban because it does not take seriously the actual complaint that the pro-lifer is raising. What is the pro-lifer's view? The pro-lifer's view isn't that the un- that the- that we're trying to control what a woman does with her own body. 
The pro-lifers view is that there's another body inside the mother's body, which, by the way, no duh. Everybody knows, even the woman. Now, I was having a conversation with my 40-year-old son, my stepson, actually. I hate to say stepson, but I just need to clarify, because some of you don't realize. I married a single mom. She was 16, Dane. And he's now an ER nurse up in Fairbanks, Alaska. He's actually going on a mission next week. He's in town now going on a mission to uh, a medical mission uh, to the Philippines for a few weeks. Very good ER nurse uh, and great Christian, too, and having conversations with people when he has conversations about abortion. Um, some have said, well, that's, it, that's not a baby. That's just a parasite. Now, I talk about this a little bit in the book coming up, Street Smarts, and September 12th is the release date. But um, it's it, it just so obviously false. It strikes me as odd why anybody would say this in defense of abortion. Because we all know differently. At least it's an acknowledgement that the, the, the thing growing inside mom is not mom. It's not the woman's body. It is inside the woman's body, but it's something else. Now, many years ago, Eileen McDonough d- d- uh, uh, pioneered or championed the argument that um, the unborn could be killed because even though it's a separate person on her view and her argument, it's attacking the mother, and the mother can defend herself. And so calling it a parasite, as some have done to my my son, then that's just another way of diminishing the value and trying to justify abortion. The irony is, is nobody really believes it's a parasite unless they're trying to justify abortion. Because the person who claims it's a parasite, when they meet a woman who is hapai with child, one in the oven, they uh, meet tong in Thai, which means to have a stomach. They don't say, hey, when's your parasite do? How's your parasite doing? What sex is your parasite? Do you know yet? And if they lose the child through miscarriage, I'm so sorry that you have feel so bad, but at least you got rid of the parasite. No, everybody knows what's going on. Okay? It's a human being. And that's the case we're making. So when someone tries to make the case, well, you're, you don't have anything to say about what a woman does with her own body. Well, our view isn't that it's her own body in the sense they mean it. Our view is that it's a separate human being whose life is being taken. And so that kind of complaint mischaracterizes our view. And then it becomes easy to refute it. We get to do whatever we want with our own body, or so they say. That's actually not true. Nobody can do that in a civilized country. Nevertheless, this is the direction they go to make their views sound compelling. But what they have done is ignored the actual view that the pro-lifers making. They have set up a straw man and knocked it down. Okay, I remember also a number of times different people saying this, and uh, it's the— who was the guy, the Green Bay Packers quarterback, who said this? Um, Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, Kyle knew that one. Amy didn't. <laughs> and he was having an interview with uh, uh, Danica Rodgers. Is that her name? His, his former girlfriend or whatever, you know, and she's she's got, she's the 
race car driver or whatever, but and then he was talking about how he's defected from Christianity because how can anybody believe a view that holds X, Y, Z? And one of the details that he mentioned was that God would send people to hell just because they didn't believe in him. What kind of God is that? Well, see, that is not the Christian view. We don't hold people go to hell because they don't believe in God. In Revelations 20, you have the great white throne judgment, and there's Jesus saying, do you believe in God or not? No, go to hell. That's not what's happening. The books are open, and everyone is judged. How? According to their deeds. By the way, you're not even judged for not believing in Jesus. That's not the basis for the judgment. The basis of the judgment is the wrong that you've done. Now, you could have avoided the judgment if you trusted Christ to take the judgment for you. So he's the antidote, but you are not— you, you, a person doesn't die because they, they refused an antidote. They die because the, the disease the antidote would have helped killed them. They could have avoided dying by using the antidote, but the antidote's not the problem. It's the disease that's the problem. And in the same sense, nobody's going to hell because they didn't believe in God. They are going to be judged for the crimes they committed against God, and God has made a list of them, and it will be the basis for the judgment at the great white throne judgment. And everyone there will realize that it is not as Aaron Rodgers characterized it. People aren't going to hell just for some frivolous reason because they didn't believe in God, but rather their lives will be before their eyes, and no one will be able to say, I don't deserve this, because everyone will see. By the way, it's not every individual will see. Every el- everyone else will see, because they will all be there as the judgment takes place. Read it for yourself. And everybody, by the way, who is judged according to their deeds does not make it. They end up in the lake of fire and, uh, and, and, and punished for their crimes against God. So the simple calculus here is either Jesus pays for your crimes or you pay. That's it. Either he pays or you pay. There is no other alternative. You're not going to try to be really nice to get out of this. It doesn't work that way. You're already supposed to be really nice. You're already supposed to be good. That's what you owe God. And when we're not nice, we're not good, and we sin against Him continually, continually, every second of every single day, that adds up. And the rap sheet is going to be really long. And the rap sheet, our rap sheet, is what condemns us. Our certificate of debt as Paul characterizes it in Colossians chapter 2. That is what bears testimony against us, that we loved evil rather than good. We loved darkness rather than light because our deeds were evil, okay? And at that event, our deeds will come to light, and everyone will see that we will deserve what we get. So be aware when, even in subtle ways, when someone else mischaracterizes the view you hold, and then assaults the mischaracterization and successfully um, 
trounces a straw man. And in that circumstance, um, you might ask him, what is it that you actually think I believe here? So when it comes to abortion, what do you think that my view is about this? Not just I'm against it. Why do you think I'm against it? Okay, and when they say, hopefully, well, because you think it kills an innocent human being. Then you can say, well, well how is, how is, uh, okay, how, okay, now you got clarity. And if it's the genetic fallacy, how is that a woman's issue if that's actually happening? So you can clear that one up at the, at the same time. <clears throat> or if they, if Aaron Rodgers says, well, this is what it seems to me. No, let me clarify, Aaron. <clears throat> On the biblical view, a person is punished for their own sins. So let me ask you a question. Have you done wrong before God? Simple yes or no. If he says no, well, then I want to talk to your wife, your girlfriend, your children, your friends, anybody in your life who has visibility of your actions. Everybody has. All right. Okay, now what? Now you're guilty, Aaron. Now you stand guilty before God. Now what? Are you interested in a pardon? That's available. That's what Jesus gives. People, God doesn't punish people who are not guilty. He only punishes the guilty. So we clarify what our view actually is. And frankly, once we clarify it carefully, without a lot of religious lingo and spiritual hocus-pocus confusing things and making it hard to understand, we just say it clearly. The clear characterization sometimes is its own apologetic. It's there there is a self-presenting quality to some of these things. Of course, people do bad should be punished. We all know this. That's why we complain when somebody gets off scot-free, right? They got away with murder. So what? Well, that's not right. Ah, got it. Well, he's this. He's not going to get away with it, and neither are you. We all have our own rap sheets. Okay, so there, there you have it. This is a quick uh, thumbnail sketch on clear thinking, allowing you to see a problem and mostly I've talked about three informal fallacies. If you can master these three informal fallacies, and if you they're not hard to do, you have a clear picture of what they are, you can look them up and go to Google and type them in. You'll get more illustrations, more characterizations of it. They're ad hominem, name-calling, genetic fallacy, faulting something for its source, when the source isn't related to the problem, and straw man, mischaracterizing a view and then knocking over the defeating the mischaracterization easily, okay? All informal fallacies, all in play nowadays with many issues. Okay, let's go to break, and then you're open my calls when I come back. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? 
Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. All right, I've got a bunch of um, open mic calls here. By the way, the way open mic works is uh, you don't have to call in on the show for you to be on the show. <laughs> Simple way of putting it. You can call in um, either on a phone number that I'll give you in a moment or just do it on the website, and you can go to our homepage, str.org, and drop down on the podcasts, go to live broadcasts, and then there's some prompts that you can follow, okay? And then you just say your name and speak your question. And then we archive it, and eventually we get to it. We'll play your question here. If you don't want to go to the homepage, that's the best way to do it, by the way, for us. But you can also just dial 857-DIAL-STR, 857-D-I-A-L-S-T-R. Now, I never like those because it's hard for me to find the letters. So I'll give you the numbers, 857-342-5787, 857-342-5787. And then, is there a prompt in that? Do they talk about it and say, okay, now go, or do you start talking? Yes, she doesn't know. Yeah, I think there is. Okay. <clears throat> but we have people leave their open mic calls in either either way, and we have lists of them in, in circumstances like this. I can go to those calls. So uh, let's see. Who am I going to take first? Um, well, um, <laughs> this particular set that I have in front of me has a lot of real hard ones. <laughs> that is... Um, things that are odd passages that um, are hard to understand and apply today, okay? There, let's see where, okay, here, here's Michael, 34 seconds, okay? Let's go to Michael. Do you have him handy? There it is, yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Hey, Greg and the team at SDR. Here's a question. I had a conversation with my wife about sin and temptation, and it got to the question that, does Satan know what we're thinking? Because a lot of people say that um, he knows our weaknesses, so he knows our temptations. So the question is, does he know what we're thinking, just like God knows what we're thinking? I don't believe he's omniscient like God. I don't think he can share the same attributes, but what are your thoughts? Well, thank you, Michael, and uh, I agree with you. He is not omniscient, but it seems obvious that he knows what we're thinking, or we have access to our mind in some sense. Um, 
And when we think of him being the tempter or the liar, okay, um, he rules the world by deception, uh, by blinding the eyes of the unbeliever, um, holding him captive to do his will. He, in fact, he holds the whole world in his power. And by the way, I'm quoting passages now. I just quoted second first Corinthians second Corinthians chapter four, I quoted second Timothy chapter two, and I quoted first John chapter five. I just put them all together. Revelations twelve says he deceives the whole world. Okay. So how does that happen? How could I deceive Amy? I would have to probably talk to her. <laughs> I'd have to tell her something. And it would have to be persuasive. Now, that doesn't mean I get into her head, but isn't it the case when we think about things that people end up believing ideas or thinking things uh, that that are that are just seem to come out of nowhere? Or we have uh, the scripture tells us be careful that a root of bitterness does not spring up in our heart. Um, uh, because we're not um, ignorant of Satan's ploys, so he could use the root of bitterness. But how does he use the root of bitterness? In order to use it, you've got to aggravate it a little bit, employ it a little bit, poke around at it, it seems to me, and all of these are mental activities. Recall also, was it in uh, the Gospel of John? We looked this up not too long ago, Amy where um, the text says that Satan, having put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, I mean, there's more to it, obviously, that's not a complete sentence, but that's what it says. Satan put it into his heart. Now, he can't put it into his heart unless he's got access to his heart. He's not omniscient. Maybe he doesn't know everything we're thinking. But the way that you tempt a person is by uh, alluring them with something that appeals to them. There are some things where there's—look, at if you're not gay, you're not going to be able to be tempted by, uh, by, by a homosexual sexual image or something like that. You're probably going to be put off by it. But if you are, then you are. So— I mean, some. How was that done? The tempting is done. It seems to me with an awareness and knowledge of what's in the mind and what the weaknesses are. Now, I guess some people might argue, no, he's just observing you on the outside, figuring out what you're like, and then throwing that at you. Well, okay. I don't know why there's the resistance people would have to saying, no, Satan can't get into your mind. Maybe they think that's sacrosanct in some way. I don't know. I, it, it just seems like he has tremendous leverage on people, a tremendous ability to convince them of error and untruth, a tremendous ability clearly to blind them to the truth. And if all of these things are the case, I don't know how they can be the case, and especially putting it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus if he can't get into our hearts or have access to our hearts or our thinking in some sense. So I'm inclined to to believe, to affirm, that Satan does have access to our minds and in some measure at least knows 
what we're thinking. Um, and this is just off the top of my head. I, I probably, if I was thinking about it more, there'd be other passages that I'd be able to um, uh, to, to appeal to to give more evidence that I think Satan has this kind of access. Okay, just just that's my at least that's my view right now. Michael, thanks for the call. Okay, I have a let's see, we've got uh, about seven or eight minutes left here. Um, let's see here. Da 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 da. <clears throat> Um, da, da, da. Okay, um, I'm looking for one in particular I looked at. All right, let's try this. Uh, this is Brian's. This is the flat earth question, okay? What do you say, Brian? 101. There's two Brian's there, isn't there? Hey, Greg, Brian in Zimmerman, Minnesota here. I'm wondering if you could address the biblical evidence or lack thereof for a flat earth cosmology. I have an individual in my life who is very strongly believes in the flat earth concept, and they believe very strongly that the Bible supports this. They feel that the lies are of Satan for why we have the global earth concept and that it is their duty to prove that flat earth is true in an effort to spread the truth of God's word. Mm. I would like to look at this strictly from a biblical standpoint to show that the Bible does not support the flat earth concept. Uh, and I'd like to leave science out of it. I'd like to detach these two concepts and just strictly look from a biblical perspective. So I'd appreciate any insight you have on that. Mm-hmm. Thanks. I love the show. Thank you, Brian. I'm glad you like the show. And here, part of the difficulty right here is the restrictions that are placed on us. We have different, two different sources of information from God, two different books, as it were. Okay, you have the 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 book of Scripture, and you have the book of natural theology. And the book of natural theology is affirmed in the book of Scripture, famously. Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that the evidence of God and God's world and his nature are clearly seen through what has been made. And human beings are going to be held responsible so that they are without excuse. So we have the ability to find out the things about God and his world by looking at the world itself. Now, okay, we can just say, I'm going to leave science out of it, okay? I'm just not going to appeal to science. All science is is a collection of information that we seem well justified to believe based on our observations of the world. But just forget about it. Uh, What I'm not going to be able to do is I'm not going to be able to give you a verse that says the world is, although I think they might exist, actually, but I just can't give you one. Hugh Ross could probably give you one to say that the world is round, or actually the world is a globe, all right? I'm not going to be able to give you that. But that that's not a problem, because it presumes that the only things that we can trust as being true are things that we read in the Bible, but that most of the things that we know to be so are not in, in the Bible at all. And the Bible 
I don't know where the Bible teaches a flat earth, frankly. And by the way, if, if the earth is flat because of what the, what the, the sun rises and sun sets, what, what is it rising and setting on a, on, a, on a flat sheet? Is that what's going on? Um, this is the language of appearance, okay? So uh, it looks to us like the sun rises and sunset. Even nowadays, we know differently. The language is still sunrise and sunset. It's right here on my iPhone. That doesn't mean we're geocentrists when we use that language. I don't know where the Bible declares that the earth is flat. And, and, and if, by the way, you can walk, <laughs> because the, okay, so, I don't, I don't know where it declares it's flat. I don't know where it declares it's a globe. But I, but I do know it does declare that we learn things about reality from the physical world that God himself has made. And it's, it, it, if what this person, Brian, that you're talking to, will not believe anything but the testimony of Scripture, there's a whole bunch of other things that he can't believe. Almost everything he knows, he's not going to be able to affirm because the scripture doesn't speak to that. It's not meant to speak to that. So, um, if what what it means to be true is that the claim fits reality, you have to be able to look at the claim and look at reality to see if there's a matchup. You can't just look at the claim and say, here's what I think it means, therefore reality must be like that, and I don't even have to look at reality in order to determine if the statement is accurate. Okay? When you stand on the beach, you can only see so far. I don't know. It's not actually very far. To the horizon. What is the horizon? That is the limit that the eye can see something that is on the face of the earth that is visible before the curvature of the earth swallows it up. If the earth was flat, you should in principle be able to see from where I live in on the west coast, Japan. You just need a good telescope. You can do that in the stars. You can look at the moon, straight shot, boom, and look at very close detail. Why can't you look at Japan? It's a lot closer than the moon, because the Earth is curved. When you have an eclipse, I've got to get them right here, a lunar eclipse. No, is it a lunar eclipse? No, it's a solar eclipse. That is, no, that is the, whatever it is, when the Earth gets in the way of the sun so that the moon goes blotted out, then you see the curved edges of the earth reflected on the moon in the shadow. No duh. Okay, so, so here's a question I ask sometimes. Is the, do we believe the Bible because it's true, or is it true because we believe it? The only way we can believe it because it's true is if the beliefs that we have about it matches reality in some fashion. We can correspond it there. For this friend, Brian, the Bible, he, the Bible is true because he believes it. He's just going to believe it. And even if he has an errant belief, he, he mistakes a teaching of the Bible to be a flat earth. He's still going to believe that regardless of what 
his the rest of his senses tell him. And as for not trusting his senses about the nature of the world, but only trusting the so-called Word of God, I say that so-called because it needs its senses to assess the words on the page. If he can't assess, trust his senses to assess the world in the ways I just described, then how can he trust his senses to be able to read accurately the words on the page? They both go together. And incidentally, you can get in an airplane and fly around the world. <laughs> it's doable. You just keep heading in the same direction, and eventually you'll end up where you started. That can't happen unless the earth is round. But he won't allow anything like that because he's fideistic. The Bible is true because he believes it. And even if he understands it wrong, he believes it anyway, and therefore he is locked into an error. He has an unshakable faith, and it's delusionary, and therefore he has an unshakable delusion. Bad news. Sorry, Brian. Best I could do there. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give him heaven, friends. Bye-bye.